This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. At this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. Then a statement somewhat in detail of a course to be pursued seemed fitting and proper. Now, at the expiration of four years, during which public declarations have been constantly called forth on every point and phase of the great contest, which still absorbs the attention and engrosses the energies of the nation, little that is new could be presented. The progress of our arms, upon which all else chiefly depends, is as well known to the public as to myself. And it is, I trust, reasonably satisfactory and encouraging to all, with high hope for the future, no prediction in regard to it is ventured. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the Union and divide effects by negotiation. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive. And the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And the war came. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war to strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union, even by war. While the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it, neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration it has already attained. Neither anticipated 
that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war might speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword as was said 3,000 years ago so still it must be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us 
to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. How many of you have been to the Lincoln Memorial? Depending upon where you live or go to school, I suspect quite a few of you have, and others I hope will be able to do so in the future. Would you come with me to the Lincoln Memorial? If you do, the Park Service visitors will tell us it's the second most visited place in Washington, second only to the Vietnam Memorial. As you walk up the steps, what you will see first is the tall, Daniel Chester French statue of Lincoln, 29 feet high. As you walk inside what I call that temple space, if you turn to the left, carved on one panel is the Gettysburg Address. If you turn to the right, carved on three panels in Indiana limestone is the second inaugural address. Today, we're gonna to take an adventure of understanding I want to help us understand Abraham Lincoln, and through Lincoln's words, help us understand the Civil War. You remember that Lincoln was born in 1809 in Kentucky, moved with his family in 1816 to Indiana, and then as a 21-year-old, moved to Illinois in 1830. He separated from his family and lived in the tiny village of New Salem, he was elected to the Illinois State Legislature, served one term in Congress, and then in 1860 was elected the first Republican to be President of the United States. Did you know that Lincoln had only one year of formal education? And yet he has become what many of us would want to say is our greatest president. And what I would like to say today is he's our most eloquent president. Lots of people look at the Lincoln Memorial at the Gettysburg Address. It is a wonderful address. But did you know that Lincoln really thought his second inaugural was what he called his best effort, his greatest speech? So together, we're going to try to discover in these 700 words something of Abraham Lincoln and from Lincoln something about the meaning of the Civil War. Now, I'm an historian, and I know that I want to place this, if I can, in the history of the 19th century. But the remarkable thing about Lincoln is his words reach across time. At the first commemoration of 9-11 in New York City in the year 2002, people looked for a poet or a politician to give voice to their deepest feelings. At the end of the day, they simply said together, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. 
We've got to remember the context in which this was offered. A nation had been at war for four years, 620,000 dead, as many as all of our other wars put together. Lincoln is inaugurated for a second time. Lincoln that day will face a crowd that comes in the midst of mud and rain, 35,000 of them. A reporter for the Times of London, sometimes people outside of one's own culture see things quite clearly, was struck by a group of people that he suspected had never been to an inauguration before. Almost half the crowd were African Americans. You've seen inaugurations on television. You know what wonderful celebrations they can be, especially if it's your candidate. I expected that this inauguration would be a time of great celebration, but in reading some of the letters and diaries of people who were there that day, I discovered, to my surprise, quite a different feeling. Many of the people were deeply angry, as they wrote in their letters. Angry, why? Because think about it. Probably every person in the crowd had lost a father, husband, son, brother in this terrible, tragic civil war, and they wanted Lincoln to give voice to their feelings of anger. That's what we do in times of war. We demonize the enemy. Surely he would give voice to their deepest feelings. Lincoln had spoken 25 to 30 minutes in his first inaugural. But this inaugural address would only be 701 words. Let's try to understand through Lincoln's words something of who he is in American history. Lincoln begins at this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office. There is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. This is not exactly four score and seven years ago. What is Lincoln doing in this first sentence or in this first paragraph? It's not entirely clear. May I make a suggestion? Lincoln does something in the first paragraph that in a sense breaks all the rules of modern studies of leadership. Modern leadership is often suggesting, hyping if you will, all the great things the leader is going to do. Lincoln is going to take exactly the opposite tack. He is going to want to diminish the expectations of his audience. Look carefully. Line two, he says, there is less occasion for an extended address. Line eight, little that is new could be presented. The second to the last line of the first paragraph, no prediction in regard to it is ventured. It's in the second paragraph that we begin to get a sense as to what Lincoln is doing. And I suggest that Lincoln is asking a question that almost no one in the early months of 1865 is asking. He's asking the question, how can the South be brought back into the Union after this Civil War is ended? And his answer begins by his use of what I call inclusive language. Let's see it together. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. The word all is inclusive. Do you sense what Lincoln's doing? He is at the outset of this address imputing the best possible motives to the people of the South. He is not demeaning them.
At the end of the paragraph, both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war. Aha, you may want to say, as has been said to me, but at the end of that paragraph, Dr. White, isn't it true that he says both parties deprecated war, inclusive language, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish? Aha. When you and I listen to teachers or politicians or preachers, we need to pay attention to what that person does not say as well as what they do say. Just think if Lincoln would have said it this way, both parties deprecated war, but those Confederates, those rebels, those traitors, if he had said it that way, the crowd would have erupted in applause and cheers, but Lincoln simply says, but one of them. I think Lincoln is self-consciously wanting to diminish the emotion of the crowd that they can hear his speech and act in a way different than what they expect. In this second paragraph, I want to call your attention to something that is missing. Lincoln misses the use of personal pronouns. He only uses the personal pronoun twice in this entire address. Can you imagine a modern politician not using the word I, 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 I over and over again? In fact, if you look at the second paragraph in the second sentence, he says, while the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, why didn't he simply say, while I delivered the inaugural address? from this place. Reminds me of one of my favorite Lincoln stories. In 1864, he was entertaining a group of soldiers from Ohio in the White House. And he said to them, you know, this is the most wonderful country in which we live. Any of your children could one day become president of the United States, just like my father's child has. My father's child. Lincoln had a conflicted relationship with his father, and yet he doesn't say, just like I have, he said, like my father's child has, so Lincoln-like. Uh, in the second paragraph, we also get a sense of Lincoln's rhetorical artistry, his, the beautiful way that he uses words, a person with one year of education. One of his favorite literary devices is what we call alliteration, use of a consonant over and over and over again, a similar consonant. Let's listen to Lincoln. All thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the Union and divide effects. Both parties deprecated war. Eight times in these brief sentences, Lincoln uses the consonant D. What does alliteration do for you and me, the listener? Well, what it does is it begins to bring together these thoughts like in music, it's often a crescendo that raises the intensity as we move through the paragraph. Lincoln understood that the use of alliteration works upon the ear in a kind of invisible rhythm 
that ties all of his ideas together. Now, when Lincoln spoke briefly, as at Gettysburg, 272 words, one of his favorite devices was to take the same idea, the same word, and repeat it over and over and over again for emphasis. Look at this second paragraph. Can you find the word, it's a noun, that he will say over and over and over again? It's the word war, which he says seven times as a noun, twice as a pronoun. Well, war is what people had been talking about. This is the subject of everyone's conversation. This is what they expect to hear from Abraham Lincoln. And if we step back for a moment, it's as if in the second paragraph he's become an historian or a chronicler. He begins to describe the course of this war. The war is the direct object, both dramatically and historically, of the actions of the soldiers, of the generals, and of he as commander-in-chief, until we get to the last sentence. And in this remarkable last sentence, Lincoln, as it were, reverses everything that he has set up to this moment. And the war came. You see, I think Lincoln had discovered a great truth that we are still struggling to discover. The North began this war and expected to win within three or four months. They had far more men in arms. They had a much greater industrial base. They had a much larger population to call upon. But the war went on and on and on and on. And now it had been going on for four years. Lincoln discovered this truth, that we start a war believing we are in control. But actually, in the end, the war is in control of us. The war had leaped out of the hands of the generals. And as Lincoln literally every afternoon visited Union and even Confederate prisoners in the hospitals of Washington, he saw the cost of this war. So in the last sentence, suddenly the war is no longer the direct object, it is the subject. And the war came. Now, we have photographs of Lincoln delivering the second inaugural address, but we have no audio. I've wondered, and I want you to wonder with me, how did Lincoln say those last words? Edward Everett, who spoke at Gettysburg for two hours and seven minutes before Lincoln, how would you like to follow someone like that, was the great orator of the 19th century. I can imagine that he might have said something like, and the war came. I don't think Lincoln spoke those words like that at all. May I suggest that for me, I think he might have said it this way, and the war came, sadly, mournfully, 620,000 dead. The third and longest paragraph is Lincoln's recapitulation of the purpose of the war, the beginning of the war. The question has been asked in our day, what did Lincoln really think about slavery? Did he really care about African-American slaves? Was his Emancipation Proclamation only a military or a political maneuver? What was his feeling about this? Well, one way to begin to answer that question is to look at the third paragraph. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it, that little 
footnote there next to part means that originally he had put half, but I don't think he wanted to credit the South as having half of the nation, so he changed his word to part. Lincoln was a great editor or reviser. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. We've had lots of conversations. You will want to talk about this. What was the cause of the war? Lincoln is saying clearly here, slavery is the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents, oh, that's the modern word, insurgents, would rend the Union even by war, while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. Lincoln came back into politics in 1854 when the Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed. It offered the possibility that slavery now might move beyond the confines of the South into the Western states, and Lincoln wanted to restrict that it could not move West. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration of which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause, slavery, of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Now Lincoln makes what I want to suggest is a shift in the content and the tone of his address when he offers the next line. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other. Well, now you know that this is another case of inclusive language. What is Lincoln suggesting? He is saying to this northern audience, remember, the people of the South read the Bible as much as the people of the North. The soldiers of the Confederacy read the Bible every bit as much as the Union soldiers. But then he continues, and each invokes his aid against the other. We've often seen in our time the semicolon drop out of our language. Lincoln uses it often, and often it means to set up a kind of opposition. If the first is an affirmation, both read the same Bible, the second is really an interrogation. Lincoln is not happy with the idea that each invokes his aid against the other. In fact, Lincoln had become tired of delegations of clergy and politicians who came to him on a regular basis to say, God is on our side, God is on our side. He knew that they were also coming to Jefferson Davis to say, God is on our side. One afternoon, he literally leapt out of his chair and said, pardon me, I would like to figure out how I could get to be on God's side. For what Lincoln is saying in this statement is, God cannot be a territorial God. God is not a tribal God. God must be the God of the entire nation. And then he says this line from memory, for it's actually a verse from the Old Testament, Genesis 3.19. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces but one of those semicolons again. But let us judge not that we be not judged. I think it's as if Lincoln thought that the first part of the sentence was pretty harsh. So suddenly he offers quite a different sentiment.
let us judge not, that we be not judged. When this speech was completed, the very next day a reporter in the, one of the Washington papers said, Do you know this is Lincoln's Sermon on the Mount. What he meant was that this verse, let us judge not that we be not judged, comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the point is that instead of an ethic of law and retribution and judgment, we ought to be practicing a law of forgiveness and reconciliation. The prayers of both could not be answered, and that of neither has been answered fully. Then Lincoln offers this affirmation, the Almighty has his own purposes. I suggest that this is the central sentence of the entire address. Central architecturally, it comes right in the middle, but central in terms of the meaning that Lincoln wants to convey. For now, if we have listened carefully, we begin to discern that along with the soldiers and the generals and Lincoln as commander-in-chief, there's another actor at work here. For Lincoln privately and now for the first time publicly has been asking himself the question, where is God in the midst of this civil war? When Lincoln says both read the same Bible and the Almighty has his own purposes, I suggest that Lincoln has made a decision to speak not simply in political terms, but in religious terms or religious language. Aha, but this raises an interesting question. For many would want to say, I didn't know that Lincoln was religious. Lincoln perhaps was the only president who never joined a congregation. And yet suddenly in this address, 701 words, he will mention God 14 times, quote the Bible four times and invoke prayer three times. And now Lincoln will make one more shift in the inaugural address that is the most startling shift of all to his audience. And the audience is surprised when suddenly Lincoln thunders forth, woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense cometh. Rather than self-congratulation, this is self-indictment. Lincoln is saying to the assembled audience, we, the American citizens, have a great evil in the midst of our society, and this evil has been there from the beginning. Ah, but remember how I said earlier it's important what one doesn't say? What if Lincoln had said to the audience, if we shall suppose that slavery is one of those offenses? The audience would have burst into applause because they would have assumed he was pointing south of the Mason-Dixon line to the south. But when he uses the inclusive word American, he is suggesting that all of us are involved in this great evil. Let's listen to what he says. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in the living God always ascribe to him? Lincoln is saying to the entire nation, the great offense is slavery and we must change. Why must we change? Because this is a moral universe. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray 
that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, until every drop of blood drawn with a lash, slavery, shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, 620,000 dead. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The words of the last paragraph speak across time with malice toward none, with charity for all. Ah, but we have to recognize that you and I wouldn't use the word malice, probably not even charity in this sense. Let's be clear about what Lincoln is saying. Malice is really another word for evil. In this sense, it's directed evil, directed at certain persons. The word charity is perhaps a little simpler to understand. We could simply use the word love. It's the word that we would use today. So we might say with evil toward none, with love for all. And perhaps those are modern words that help convey Lincoln's timeless meaning. I'm often asked by people, what do you think Lincoln would say about? And then they would raise one particular political or social issue. That reminds me of a wonderful story told by the historian and Lincoln biographer David Donald. Uh, He was asked once in Boston in the middle of a bus strike by a woman, what would Lincoln say about the bus strike? And Dr. Donald, with his lovely smile and quizzical eyes, paused for a long time. And then he leaned forward and he said, I think Lincoln would say, and what is a bus? It isn't that Lincoln can tell us how to solve particular problems or issues of the 21st century, but Lincoln can be a role model. He can teach us humility. He can teach us how to respect each other, even if we differ in our opinions. He can teach us to reach out in a civil rather than an uncivil political conversation. So there's all kinds of values that Lincoln can teach us as we wish to be Americans today. These words really stand out for their clarity. I suggest that Lincoln is developing as a public speaker. His first inaugural is really the address of a lawyer. It's rational. It's legal. This address is filled with emotional kind of language that really touches us who listen to it, to our heart. Now, to the surprise, the New York Herald reporter said, only at this point were there four occasions of applause. Think about that. Usually we're used to many times of applause for an inaugural address or a State of the Union address. Ah, but the reporter for the Times of London heard something else. Remember, he's the one who had said there was a group of people there that day who he suspected had not been to an inaugural address before. And as he listened carefully, they who were standing at the back of the crowd began to say something. He strained his ear to hear it. He didn't get it at first, but then he began to pick it up. And they began to say, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. The African-Americans in the crowd picked up the chant. They understood something here. Frederick Douglass, the greatest African-American of the 19th century, wrote in his diary that evening, this was not a state paper. This was a sermon. 
I think Lincoln must have thought long and hard about this last paragraph. We realize that today our nation sometimes seems quite divided, but try to imagine the Civil War much more divided. Lincoln was about to ask for forgiveness, for understanding, for reconciliation. He does so in words that I suggest reach across time to us with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. In 41 days, Lincoln was dead. He had been elected for a second term. Gamblers in the street were betting that he would have been elected for a third term. We can only wonder what might have happened to our nation if he could have lived and lived out these words. I was privileged to be taken to the attic, as they call it, at the American History Museum in Washington. There they have in special places particular things relating to each of our presidents. As we went to look at the things relating to Lincoln, I found a beautiful silk mourning badge worn by people who were mourning the death of President Abraham Lincoln. And on the mourning badge, it simply read, with malice toward none. For you see, Lincoln did not just speak these words. People came to understand he lived these words. And that is why, not simply in the United States, but as I've been privileged in the last year and a half to travel and speak on Lincoln in, in Germany and Italy and Mexico, people around the world are fascinated by this man of one year of formal education who represents the best values of what it means to be an American. And this is the reason we should be studying him and his words today. Thank you. imagine if asked that most Americans would say that the Gettysburg Address was his greatest speech. You say this second inaugural is his best speech. Why is that? Well, Richard Lincoln said it was his greatest speech. Uh, the day that he wrote it, he received a congratulatory letter from a New York Republican politician. And Lincoln replied, this is my best effort. I'm not wanting to derogate the Gettysburg Address. It's marvelous. I think it's much more all-encompassing. It's spoken towards the end of the war. And Lincoln, who is growing as a speaker, thought it was his best speech. And do you think that people in the South uh, could appreciate what he was saying? They were no longer listening. They were viewing him through a caricature. He was the black Republican. There were actually only five newspapers still publishing in the South, but the Petersburg Gazette editor, obviously struggling over the meaning of the address, wrote in an editorial, what are we to make of this peacemaker? He seems to be taking his message from the Bible. Well, I guess we should say, let us judge not that we be not judged. <laughs> 
When I, um, I first, I'd known it for a long time, and then I saw it on the wall of a grammar school, and I realized as I read it that he hadn't said this to the rebels. And I think everyone expected him to do that, and instead he was extraordinarily generous. Was that something that surprised people? This is what surprised people. As I prepared to try to understand the address, I read the letters and the diaries of the people who were there that day. And I discovered that many of them were deeply angry. Think about it, in World War I, we banished the teaching of German. World War II, we banished the Japanese. They expected him to damn the people of the South. And so when he offered this magnanimous address, it took them by surprise. Not all of them understood or appreciated it right at that moment. Do you think that they succeeded, the Union, in bringing these two societies together? This was Lincoln's question. Was it possible to bring such a deeply divided nation together? That's why I suggest that the language he uses is what I call inclusive language. He's really asking himself the question, can people forgive? Could they enter into reconciliation? And sadly, 41 days later, he died. And then his own Republican Party in many ways set out to punish the South. And it became a much more difficult task. Do you think that it would have been different in any specific way had he lived? That's a hard question to ask and answer, but I think Lincoln was in the best position to do so. He had won a decisive election victory. He alone could kind of combine the strength and the magnanimity. And so even some in the South recognized that they had just lost their best friend. It was not a simple task. He was in the best position to execute that task. We talk a lot today about diversity, racial diversity, ethnic diversity. The, the North was a much more diverse society. And uh, in every way, politically, religiously, however you want to suggest it. And Lincoln saw that this was the future of the Union. I love his remarks uh, just before he offered the Emancipation Proclamation. The dogmas of the stormy past are inadequate for the present. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. He loved precedent, he loved the fathers, but he thought we had to become a new nation. Uh, Lincoln is revered now, more so than any other president. Mm -hmm. And was he revered in any way before he died? Yes and no. Uh, there were some who recognized then what a great president he was. But to be honest, we also look back through the prism of his assassination and see things, the people of his generation and of ours, that we perhaps didn't see at that time. We take another look at his speeches, Gettysburg, Second Inaugural, and others, and we see the magnificence of his vision. And I think it's also the story of his life. He represents, I think, the best of America. You can start with almost nothing certainly with almost no education, and you can rise. He called it the right to rise. I remember a phrase that was pre-World War II when people said, in America, you can be president of something. <laughs> and you can, it's Rotary or someone, and you can participate. And the lack of participation now scares the hell out of me. And Lincoln, he expected 75,000 volunteers, and he got it. 
people knew they were fighting. What were they fighting for at the beginning? They were fighting to save the union, but picking up on what you said, yes, the voter participation was much higher in the 19th century than it is in the 21st century. There was a much greater sense of closeness to the government. Actually, Lincoln and the Republicans expanded the role of the central government. They needed to, to be able to prosecute this war. But Lincoln in himself was able to kind of engender this great faith in the Union, and he did so, I would argue, through his words. This is how he captured this feeling and engendered it in the people. Does it amaze you, as it amazes me, that he was self-taught and learned how to speak with that vocabulary and that sense of rhythm, etc., on his own? It does. He, he received only one year of formal education. What we forget, however, is that the first grammar book that he used, half of it, the last half, was what was called in those days declamation, which meant he spoke aloud words from the Bible, from Shakespeare, from Lord Byron, and on and on. And so this is how he, I think he rose above others who were also qualified by his gift of public speaking. What saddens me is we denigrate speaking today. We say, oh, it's only oratory. We're pretty cynical about words. I think Lincoln rose by his gift of words. I do the same thing as an actor. <laughs> I used to lock myself in the bathroom <laughs> with a book of poetry and stare at myself in the mirror and do the poetry and watch my face and my mo- until my mother said, get the hell out of the bathroom. <laughs> but I recommend that to every actor. And there's some language, like what Lincoln wrote, that you submit to and there's language that you are you can't submit to it and when you submit to great language it's a feeling I cannot describe there are certain things that you can hear in Lincoln a a kind of rhythm and a kind of Mm -hmm. acceleration that really I don't know how he did that and I write all the time and I try to do that I used to read Winston Churchill and then close the book and try to read and write like him. And I try to write like Lincoln. And I think he knew a secret that no one else really knew. He could see the future and he knew what it could be. And no one else knew that. And he knew it. And he was the most ambitious of all of them. They were calling him ambitious when he was 20. (laughs) Well, one thing I've learned since working with Lincoln, living with Lincoln, is he, by writing his speeches, he would usually speak the word or words out loud first. He had a great sense for the sound of the words, and then he would put it on the paper. And I think that's another part of what you're telling us in terms of the Shakespeare. He came from a world of... um, a world that was held in contempt. He was a Westerner. He was, mm-hmm. didn't go to Harvard and all that. But he did something that no one else could have done, I think, which was kept this coalition together. And I wonder if he was appreciated for that also, and not just his speeches. Yes, it's, it's tempting to simply see him as an idealist. He was a realist in the sense that he was a really shrewd, astute politician. One day he had a conversation with Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner, who was one of many, saying, why don't you free the slaves earlier? And he said to Sumner, you and I have exactly the same idea, but we're operating on a different clock. 
And his clock was he had to keep the four border states in the Union. And this was a political task that had great skill to execute. It's said that that history is the least liked subject in school and the most liked subject after school. And I think I would ask you, does Lincoln's writing and his career resonate today? Can they take a lesson today from him and his circumstances? Well, in the privilege of speaking to junior high, high school, and college students, I will often say you will study many, many great figures, as you should, of all the disciplines from many centuries. But you could count on the fingers of one hand the words of someone whose words you're still speaking today. So that in the first commemoration of 9-11 in New York, the people of New York looked for a poet or a politician that could give voice to their greatest hopes. In the end, they recited the Gettysburg Address. Because Lincoln is that rare person. Yes, he is an historical figure in the 19th century, but his words still speak in 2014, 16, 18, 20, and will continue to speak. He somehow speaks across time. And that's, I think, his ultimate greatness. Anyway, I want to thank you very much for this. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.